This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Bugle, Counterspin, This American Life, The Onion Radio News, NPR, The David Pakman Show, The BBC News Quiz, The Daily Show, and Representative Keith Ellison from C-SPAN, with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Colbert Report. Top story this week, Jews News! Andy, <laughs> this is huge. Pope Benedict is set to announce in a new book next week that Jewish people are, wait for it, not responsible for the death of Jesus. Not guilty, Andy! Not guilty! It's like the OJ trial all over again, except this time you actually didn't commit the murder. Congratulations, <laughs> this must be a massive relief for you. Well, it's huge, John. You know, we're off the hook. I mean, a couple of thousand years late, but, uh, you know, better late than never, I guess. I mean, <laughs> well, for a start, it's a surprise it's taken people so long to get over it. It was just one guy, you know, and, you know, he'd have died anyway. Plus, it was a bloody good <laughs> career move for the lad as well. Um, so many have copied him since to boost flogging popularity, uh, flagging popularity. And uh, the thing was, John, from Jesus' point of view, his last couple of parables have got pretty lukewarm reviews, uh, particularly the parable of the half-eaten sandwich and the cleaning lady and the parable of the dog with no nose, um, apparently would have smelled terrible, uh, lacking, as he would have done, the olfactory self-awareness to maintain even canine levels of hygiene. And Jesus' last miracle would end up with a man with an orange for a head and a woman with an orangutan instead of a husband. So, clearly, he was on the downward curve, John. <laughs> and, you know, he's done an Elvis, basically. So, you know, it, it clearly wasn't our fault, John. He got, it was his agents, if anything. Um, but it's amazing how long the paperwork took to come through on this Jesus case. I mean, uh, could have saved my team a lot of aggro if I hadn't fallen down the back of a filing cabinet in 35 AD. But there you go. He's done an Elvis. Are you saying that in the last years of Jesus' life he was very much Las Vegas Jesus? <laughs> well, you know, he, he, wore, he wore white suits, didn't he? Well, I, sp yeah, I suppose I can't deny there is a connection there. Now, sure, Andy, there, there are going to be some anti-Semites who still say, well, there have been lots of high-powered Jewish lawyers working on this case for over 2,000 years, so they were bound to force a result at some point. But I say don't listen to them, Andy. This is justice! Justice! <laughs> and I guess the key question is, what now? This was a wrongful conviction, a slanderous allegation, and I think you, Andy, would be well within your rights to sue the Romans for everything you can get. Who knows how damaged your reputation has been? Yeah, well, it's been pre pretty damaged. Certainly, certainly a couple of gigs I've done. Certainly, I'm pretty sure that... <laughs> that's... There's been, no, that, that's not... Dirty. That's... That's not what I'm talking about, Andy. The, the, the oh, Anti-Defamation okay. anti League said it was an important and historic moment, and... It really is. It's going to force everyone to see the world in a slightly different way. Because I, for one, Andy, have known you for a long time. And I've always yeah. just assumed that you were a little bit of a murderer. And now <laughs> I realise that that was wrong. I, I was wrong. That was groundless. And this must be quite yeah. a shift for you as well. You've been living in a mental prison your entire life. Now you get to walk out into the community without that criminal record hanging over you. Do, do you think you'll be able to assimilate into so society okay? I just hope you don't re-offend, you know, finding yourself wanting to murder someone dressed like Jesus in a nativity play just to get your identity back. Well, that's it. I mean, it's, you know, it's the only life I've ever known, John. You know, I, I won't get back in there. So, um... <laughs> But it's just it's difficult. It's going to take a lot of adjustment. I think, I think really the Jews as a people are going to need some counselling and uh, a lot of help from society to put ourselves back on our feet, John. 
Yeah, the man who was to blame clearly was, uh, you know, Jesus himself, you know, claiming ignorance of the law. You know, he was, he was, he was banged to rights, John. That's not an excuse. No smoke without fire. You know, lengthy charge sheet, blasphemy, claiming to be king of the Jews, being messianic in charge of a donkey, uh, telling <laughs> soppy, feel-good, saccharine, sweet, happy-ending stories. You know, what was he doing? Trying to get a job as a Hollywood screenwriter? Oh, guess what? He's not f***ing dead. Saw it coming, Jesus. Saw it coming. <laughs> so, you know, really, he, he put himself in the firing line. This is just the latest in a long line of incidents of the Catholic Church correcting past wrongs, such as the exoneration of Galileo recently. It's all part of their better so late that it's basically never system of justice. Uh, this isn't entirely new. The Catholic Church has officially considered the Jews free from blame regarding Jesus' death since 1965, which, <laughs> you are right, is breathtakingly recent. That was recent, Andy. In 1964, they still thought you were guilty. <laughs> and it's what? Since 1965, they decided we weren't guilty, and it's taken 46, 46 years for the press release to come out. <laughs> That's better. You've got to be sure, Andy. You can let justice take its course. The difference here, sure. of course, is that this comes straight from the big guy, straight from the Pope. It's basically a celebrity endorsement, and they can be very powerful. For instance, uh, the food here in America at, at Taco Bell is objectively disgusting. But if a retired NBA player pretends to eat it, all of a sudden it's worth trying. And the same is true with this example. Not blaming Jewish people for murdering Jesus may not seem appetising to people at first. The Pope is just asking everyone to try it. And this might actually be a good move for him. Pope Benedict has not enjoyed the best relationship with Jewish people so far, dating back to the fact that, as an impressionable child, he was in a youth group that was in favour of their extermination. And that will cause friction, Andy. You know, if you were in a youth group that had aims yeah. to wipe John Oliver off the face of the planet, then I would probably have some concerns about that. However much well, you claimed that it was years ago and the group was really just about increasing your own pride rather than plotting my extinction, I, I still think well, it would make me uncomfortable. Well, I mean, it wasn't years ago, John. It was very recently, and I was considered too old for membership. So. <laughs> the... The Prime Minister of Israel has thanked the Pope for his words this week. Uh, Netanyahu wrote in a letter that I commend you for forcefully rejecting in your recent book a false charge that has been a foundation for the hatred of the Jewish people for many centuries. And apparently he even offered, uh, offered uh, to give the Pope a quote to use on the front uh, of his book, that quote being, Finally, about f time, I couldn't put it down. <laughs> Well, as a, as a result of this, John, um, the, the Jews, by way of thanks, are apparently going to cede control of the international finance and entertainment industries. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it's give and take. <laughs> the, the book is going to be published on March the 10th of this year, and is called Jesus of Nazareth, Part 2, which is actually an analysis of his life, rather than what the title seems to promise. And that's a big <laughs> letdown, because Jesus of Nazareth Part 2 seems to suggest that you're basically getting Jesus of Nazareth, the revenge. Christ is back, and this time he's pissed off! I thought the Pope was writing the fictionalised story of Christ coming back down to Earth after he was crucified to take bloody vengeance against everyone who'd wronged him, with, pa with passages such as this. Jesus jumped from the roof, swinging through an open window and kicking the knife out of Peter's hand. Hey, Peter, 
Heard you denied me three times. Well, deny this, muttered our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ as he flung a ninja star deep into Peter's chest. The Lord moves in mysterious ways, whispered the holiest of holies as he span round and kicked Peter's head clean off his neck. Oh, Judas, screamed the Lamb of God, come out to play. And I wasn't the only one who was misled by that title, Andy, because apparently Joel Schumacher optioned the Pope's book before it was published for $35 million. Now he has to write an action movie about the theological analysis of Christ's life. And I just don't think that Jason Statham is suited for the project anymore. John Paul II's beatification cheered was USA Today's May 2nd headline. It was followed by 19 paragraphs of cheerleading for expediting the process of sainthood for the late Pope. Various sources in the article called the event a wonderful opportunity to recognize a great man, a man of God who inspired countless people with the strength of a titan, a strength which came to him from God. The only hint of dissent came in the last two paragraphs, courtesy of a priest who called John Paul great, sincere, and well-loved, but considered the beatification events a, quote, pure public relations move aimed at revitalizing the church's fortunes at a difficult time, close quote. USA Today explained this was a reference to the long-running sex abuse scandals involving Catholic priests. Now, there's much more to say about this. As the London Times reported last April, John Paul's good friend, Austrian Cardinal Hans Hermann Grohr, abused an estimated 2,000 boys over decades and never faced any sanction from Rome. Efforts to investigate Grohr were blocked by the Vatican, which the Times says was an apparent reference to John Paul. That incident wasn't isolated either. The Times noted that John Paul was accused of protecting a Polish archbishop, ignoring charges that Wisconsin priest Father Lawrence Murphy had molested 200 deaf schoolboys, and protecting his friend Father Marcial Maciel Delgado, whom the Pope blessed in Rome, even as he was being investigated for molestation. USA Today and others have a responsibility to include such serious allegations in any serious article about John Paul. That's if their goal is reporting and not just joining the cheering. Remember when I moved in you And the holy dove was moving too And every breath we drew is hallelujah 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 When I was 28 years old, I came back home for the first time in six years, fully aware that I was the black sheep. I had rejected my faith. I had rejected Tucson, Arizona. I was the only one in the family who wasn't married. I was the only one who couldn't even speak Spanish. And, and I was sitting with my dad in a booth at a diner. And it should have been just this kind of innocent thing where I'm visiting, you know, after six years, and it's nice to catch up. But it wasn't like that. 
we were facing each other. We both had, as it happens, cowboy hats and cowboy boots. And I remember thinking, this is a showdown. Because my dad and I were at war. My dad didn't know this, uh, but I was at war with him. I was at war with all Christians, and I was just waiting for an excuse to fire a shot. I've been raised an evangelical Christian, you know, conservative, Bible-believing Christian, and I loved it so much that I said, I'm going to be a pastor. I'm going to learn everything I can learn. And I went off and I majored in religious studies in college. And from my very first scholarly class in the history of the Bible, my faith began to crumble till there was nothing left. And I now had this game I could play where if you opened a Bible to any page, I could find five flaws in it. So I'd spent this entire time, not just with my dad, but certainly this particular evening, just waiting for a chance. Just mention the virgin birth, just once, and I'll tell you it's a mistranslation from Isaiah. You know, just just mention Second Peter, and I can prove to you it's a second century forgery. You know, say anything at all, please, please, about the Antichrist, Revelation, the end times, anything like that. And I have a screed set up that's so blistering it would make Billy Graham feel ridiculous. And I had all this ammunition, and I couldn't wait to use it. I was just looking for an excuse. It had sort of turned me into a jackass. Now, what my dad didn't know is that one of the reasons I was so excited is that I actually was just coming off a victory. The previous night, I had argued my brother-in-law to a standstill. He had mentioned something about how proud he was about being a Christian because everything in the Bible was so scientifically accurate. And I went a little nuts, and I said, Oh, yeah, well, what about this thing? And there's this tiny little section, just one sentence in like Exodus where the Israelites are fighting the Amorites or somebody, and God does a miracle where he makes the sun stand still for an entire day. You know, in order to give the Israelites a chance to recover and give them more time to fight. And I told my brother-in-law, do you really believe this? you believe this actually happened? That God stopped the entire planet from rotating, stopped gravity, all the things that would have to happen for the sun to stand still? Is that the most sensible thing the most powerful being in the world can do? And my brother-in-law said, Well, okay, that's weird, and I wish it weren't in there. But if I doubt that, where do I stop? And that, I knew, was as close as I was going to get to him saying, You're right, and I'm wrong. I remember looking at the clock, and it was five in the morning. I had argued this one point for seven hours. And I realized, this is like my job. I just put it a full working day. Now, obviously, I was obsessed. At the time, I was 28 years old. I was also a virgin, and I'd been a virgin because the Bible says so, because I thought Jesus wanted it that way. And then Jesus vanished on me. I had spent all of my life trying to be good, trying to do the right thing, and, you know, trusting that this would be rewarded. And then my faith collapsed. And there's no betrayal like losing 10 years of your life, you know, your sexual peak, basically. I'm never going to get that back. And I was furious, and I didn't know who to blame. But I knew I could help other people from having the same horrible experience. And I was looking at my brother-in-law and thinking, you know, we were arguing about Genesis, but in my mind I was thinking, there is no way you have a good sex life. 
you know, because the Bible doesn't care and pleasure doesn't even matter to the Bible, but I can save you. And with this kind of exciting, thrilling victory, still kind of humming in the back of my head, I was sitting there with my dad in the diner, because a brother-in-law is one thing, a dad is someone else. I needed to save him. And so I said, uh, so dad, what's your life like right now? And he said, well, I, I found a new church home. And I was like, I heard church. I perked up and I was ready to go. But I thought, eh, church, not much to argue about there. People go to church. Okay, nothing biblical. And he said, you know, it's a small church. And the pastor found out that I played the accordion and he made me the music minister. And that'll be nice. And again, I was like, tightened. But I thought, eh, music ministry. No, nothing there. And then he said, you know, this other kind of interesting thing is happening. Um, I've been praying about it, and I, I think I'm going to be a missionary. And that struck a chord. I sat upright, and I went, oh, really? A missionary? Where are you going to go? And then he said, oh, Spain. And I snapped. I said, oh, of course. Of course you're going to go to Spain. That is so arrogant. Only an evangelical Christian would say, oh, those poor benighted Spaniards need to learn about Jesus, you know? You know, I said, evangelical Christianity's way. The whole model of salvation that you guys preach wasn't even around till the 19th century. You claim to represent all of Christianity, and you're really just the tiny sliver at the end of the iceberg. And you know, the model of salvation you're even selling is so weird. Conversion should be the response of the whole person to a call from God on a deep personal level. And, and, and evangelical Christians have turned it into this transaction, like a, like a merchandise, like a try our God and your life will be better. Say this prayer and now here's the merchandising table. It's just horrible. And dad, I said, you're saving people? What are you saving them from? Hell, may I guess? Because let me point something else out to you. Hell is a mistranslation from the King James of four completely different words for the afterlife. Gehenna and Hades and Sheol and, 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 and King James just kind of rounded them all up to hell. And the idea of eternal torture has no precedent in the Old Testament. It has never made any moral sense. And, and, you know, the second you believe in hell, you're undermining everything good. Because a morality based in fear can only bring out the worst in people, and never their best. And I just rambled on like this. And I knew, essentially, while I was doing this, I was also assaulting his dream. You know, saying everything he was excited about, that he was sharing with me, was misbegotten, was a bad idea, was morally corrupt. But all he had to do was admit I was right, and then we'd be okay. And I really didn't know what was going to happen now, because I'd just fired the first shot. And he just kind of quietly let me do my thing. And when I'd settled down and, you know, gotten my peace out, he said, um, <clears throat> David, I'm really proud of everything you've done. And I'm really glad that you enjoy studying all these things and thinking all these thoughts. But I gotta tell you, before I became a Christian, I was miserable. I wanted to kill myself. I wanted to get a divorce from your mom. And I remembered suddenly, like I was six years old, and I was back in the car, and I remember driving in this station wagon with my dad from South Dakota to Tucson, because dad had had a miserable life, had a nervous breakdown, he was rebuilding everything. And he was holding a cigarette out the window the whole ride down. I remember as a child, this had a strong impression on me, about halfway through the trip, he simply threw away all his cigarettes, never picked them up again. That was his conversion. That was the start of the change in his life. 
And my dad continued, he said, you know, when I first went to Grace Chapel, which was the church where he had converted, he said, I thought those people were crazy. And when I was eight years old, I had gone to Grace Chapel with him, and this was a charismatic church, the kind where people, like, raise their hands, and they speak in tongues, and they anoint people with oil, and they pray for miraculous healings, and people, like, roll on the ground sometimes or dance. And my dad said, you know, I was just staring at the stuff these people were doing, and I thought, this is crazy. But I could not ignore the love in that room and the care they had for each other. And I kept going back, and I kept going back, and I wanted it to make sense to me, and I wanted it. And finally, one night, I prayed, and I said, God, if I have to cut my own head off to be happy, I will do it. So I know you've gone to college, and you've learned all these things, but here's what I know, David. I followed Jesus, and the Lord gave me a family. parents really had almost gotten divorced. I remember one time I, I ran across a notebook where my dad and my mom had like divided everything up on a piece of paper, you know, who's going to get the TV and that kind of thing. And they'd gotten that close. And then my dad converted and he said, no, we're sticking this out. I'm going to make this work. And it had. And my brother too, you know, he's deeply conservative, listens to all the kind of, you know, right wing talk radio and so forth. And he's got to be convinced that I'm going to hell. But this one time, I was on this trip, and I was a student, and he gave me $300 and said, don't bother repaying it. And I remember looking at my dad, and I thought, you know, I had sort of expected to argue like I had with my brother-in-law, you know, not to win, but to come to some kind of armistice, you know, some kind of truce where we're like, well, we'll agree to disagree, but I see your point, you know, that's a good point. I hadn't expected to lose completely, because you can't argue with decency. You can't argue with goodness. The thing about the Bible is, it's huge. I could poke at it because I could pick at anything I wanted, you know, talking snakes, virgin birth. And eventually, I came around to thinking, well, maybe religion doesn't have to be consistent. Maybe you can just like it enough for it to be good. You know, maybe religion can be something more like, like, I'm a big Star Trek fan, and if you asked me, I would say, like, I love Star Trek. But if you ask me to defend individual episodes, I would be at a loss, because I can't go to bat for everything Star Trek did. I just love the concept. And maybe religion could be like that. So what I said to my dad was, Oh, look, here comes the waitress. And we got our Sprite and had our hamburgers, and we looked at each other, raised the glass, had a bite, and my dad didn't know this. But we were having communion. Dave Dickerson is the author of a book of short stories like this one called House of Cards. So the Christians and the pagans sat together at the table, finding faith and common ground, the best that they were able. Just before the meal was served, hands were held and prayers were said, sending hope for peace on earth to all their gods and goddesses. The tree plugged in the meal had gone without a hitch Till Timmy turned to Amber and said Is it true that you're a witch? His mom jumped up and said The pies are burning And she hit the kitchen And it was Jane who spoke She said it's true The cousin's not a Christian 
It's the Onion Radio News. Jesus surprises the 700 Club with a walk-on appearance. This is Doyle Redland reporting. The popular Christian Affairs program, The 700 Club, received a surprise guest appearance today when Jesus Christ dropped by the set and chatted briefly with host Pat Robertson. Pat, I can't stay long. I just wanted to swing by and say hello to you and the whole 700 Club gang. I love this show. It's just terrific. And hey, how about this audience? The 130 Christ fans in attendance then hooted wildly and gave up enthusiastic applause unto him. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News. Rejoice, the bed you sleep in is burning. Oh, oh, rejoice, the sky's fucking falling. Oh, oh, rejoice, the world we know is turning. Oh, rejoice, your father's been calling. Rejoice, although this world will devastate you. Judgment Day is May 21st. That is, if you trust the many billboards popping up across the country. One group of Christians predicts catastrophe will strike that day, taking the true believers to heaven and leaving the rest to a terrible fate. NPR's Barbara Bradley Haggerty reports that few people genuinely believe the end of days is upon us, but prophecies of the apocalypse are definitely on the rise. Judgment Day, folks! May the 21st, 2011! Margaret Pease stands on a corner in downtown Pittsburgh handing out doomsday pamphlets. For the past seven months, she's been crisscrossing the country in a caravan with eight others, warning anyone who will listen that God's wrath is near. And I'm sorry, I might be a little loud, but I want people to get the message. I know they can see it, but I also want them to notice it. And I don't want anybody's blood on our heads or my head. Judgment Day, folks! Nearby, David LaCorey is telling a passerby what he thinks will happen in just a few days. On the May 21st at about 6 p.m., an earthquake of uh, proportions which have never been known since man was on the earth will occur. The strength. 21st? Yes, sir. Oh, this is going to be awesome. Where is it going to happen? It's going to happen everywhere. Everywhere. The man doesn't buy it, but like many people interviewed for this story, David LaCorey has bet everything on this date. He's given up his wife and son, his job, his home. LaCorey and others say that a very small fraction of Christian believers will fly up to heaven on that fateful day. Then, on October 21st, the earth and the universe will be destroyed. For those still here during those five months... Oh, it will be a horror story beyond measure. That's Harold Camping, the man who calculated the May 21st date. Camping has been predicting the end for years on his international Christian radio network, Family Radio. Camping says the Bible is written in code, and for those who are able to decipher it, it's clear as daylight. With all the proofs that God has given us and all the signs, I am absolutely certain it is going to happen. I, there is no plan B. Of course, even Jesus said he didn't know when Judgment Day would come. Camping's not bothered by that, nor by the fact that he wrongly predicted Judgment Day once before in 1994. It was based on incomplete research, and I was quite aware that the research was incomplete. And so it was just like 
a first announcement that we're almost there. So far, predictors of the end times have batted zero. The most famous was William Miller, a Baptist minister who believed that Jesus would return in the early 1840s. According to Catherine Wessinger, a historian of religion at Loyola University in New Orleans, on the night of October 22, 1844, believers gathered on hilltops to watch Jesus return. People stayed up all night. They waited. Some people allegedly put on white robes waiting to go up into heaven. And were very disappointed the next morning when the sun rose and nothing had happened. It was called the Great Disappointment. People have been predicting the end of the world in Christianity since you know, the time of St. Paul. Kathy Gutierrez, a religion professor at Sweetbriar College, says usually end times prophets do not predict a specific date. That's way too risky. But she says the predictions have come fast and thick in the past 60 years, largely because of one event. We hereby proclaim the establishment of the Jewish state in Palestine to be called Medinat Yisrael, the state of Israel. Almost all of the prophecies of the Bible depend upon Israel being in her land. David Jeremiah is an evangelical pastor and author of The Coming Economic Armageddon. And when she finally became a nation and, and the people of Israel began to regather, that sort of started the prophetic clock. Israel's birth created a booming end times industry. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, who hosts the radio program Prophecy Today, scrutinizes every development in the Middle East and says it's all predicted in the Bible. You talk about the Jews returning to the land, the alignment of the nations coming against the Jewish state of Israel, this anticipation for peace, the arrangements to put the temple up. The fact is that everything is unfolding. Never in the history of the world have all of these prophecies been coming together. De Young says everything is in place for the next big event, the rapture, when believers go to heaven and the rest are left behind. Honey, have you seen the kids? Mm. Mm, Where are they? Where, where are my kids? The rapture has been made hugely popular by movies and books like Left Behind. 41% of Americans believe that Jesus will return by the year 2050, according to a poll by the Pew Research Center. And for many of these believers, news events can take on an apocalyptic meaning. A global economy? The rise of the European Union? It's all outlined in the Bible, they say. A spate of wars and revolutions in the Middle East? Ditto. Epidemics, extreme weather patterns, open your Bible and turn on the news. Tonight from Haiti, tens of thousands of people are feared dead following a devastating earthquake. Monster quake. One of the most powerful earthquakes in history hits Japan. In one night, 173 separate tornadoes reportedly touched down. We've always had earthquakes, we've always had storms, and, and uh, we've had tsunamis in the past. Pastor David Jeremiah. But it does seem that these things are happening with more intensity and more frequently. Religion professor Kathy Gutierrez says this convergence is less about the end of the world and more about the rise of instant media. If you're looking for signs of the end, we are more than capable of delivering them directly to your computer or to your television within seconds. Gutierrez says many of the Bible's prophetic books were written metaphorically to avoid censorship. Because of that, each generation 
can revive and reinterpret them. And she says for end-time Christians, looking through a biblical lens can give chaotic world events, the tsunami in Japan, the fighting in Libya, a meaningful pattern. Things happen for a reason, and all of history marches toward a fitting denouement. And it's going to come to a definitive, clear end where the good guys are going to win and the bad guys are going to lose. It's the most comforting novelistic plot that we know. And for that reason, she says, there will always be people predicting the triumph of God and the fall of unbelievers. Barbara Bradley Haggerty, NPR News. Hi, I'm Sam Cedar. You may know me from my shows on Air America Radio, from filling in for Keith Olbermann on Countdown, or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm With Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at Majority.fm. It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby, comedians like Mark Marin, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker, and on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy, I can be mildly amusing. I'm unbought and unbossed daily on the Majority Report at Majority.fm. WeCanKnow.com is uh, predicting that May 21st, 2011 is Judgment Day. Joining us is spokesperson Allison Warden. Uh, Allison, thanks for joining us. Where did you first hear about May 21st as Judgment Day? Uh, well, I personally first heard about it um, several years ago. I believe it was in 2002. Um, I was living in Ohio at the time, and I heard about it on a local family radio station. It was sort of the first, the first place I'd ever been introduced to the idea of the end of the church age or that Christ was returning in the year 2011. And is this Harold Camping? Uh, yes. So her tell me about Harold Camping. He came up with this idea that May 20 what will happen on May 21st, 2011, which is just a couple weeks away. Uh, correct. Um, well, I'll, I'll answer the first question first. Um, it isn't just Mr. Camping that's teaching this. There are, are, the purpose of our website is to show um, several other Bible ministries that are also teaching the same thing. Uh, but Mr. Camping, um, although not a, a theologian uh, by trade, um, he is the host of an open forum like Bible program for several decades. Um, so a lot of people uh, that sort of went to the Bible to investigate this, a lot of them first become familiar with it because of him. Um, but as far as the actual where did the date come from yeah. uh, or, or what's going to happen, is it, it comes straight from Scripture, no external source like a dream or a vision or anything like that. And basically what the Bible says is going to occur on May 21st is that there will be um, a worldwide earthquake um, that will uh, open the graves. All the people that have been saved through history, their bodies are going to be glorified and resurrected. Um, believers on earth now will be uh, caught up to be with the Lord. A lot of people call that the rapture. Um, and basically anyone here after May 21st will enter a five-month period of judgment um, where salvation is not possible. So basically God is saving a great multitude until May 21st, but after that date. 
um, salvation won't be possible. So where, tell me, where, where in the Bible does it say this? I'm no Bible expert, but literally, I mean, it says what you just said to me is in the Bible is what you're saying. Yes. Yes, and it doesn't say, obviously, it doesn't explicitly say, oh, May 21st, because obviously ah, okay. we're, we're working off of, you know, our modern-day calendar. Um, right. In the Bible, the, you know, they have the Hebrew calendar, you know, and prior to that, like with Noah, um, uh, for example, um, he entered the ark on the 17th day of the second month. Now, that was using, I believe, you know, the moon phases. Um, right, so, and as and we know from Bill O'Reilly, you know, tides go in, tides go out. We don't know what's going on, the moon. Now, let me ask you this. In 94, didn't Harold Camping say Jesus would be back on September 6th? And he actually published this in his book, uh, 1994, and it just never happened. So can we really trust well, Harold Camping? Well, you know, I actually have a used copy of 1994 sitting on my, uh, to, to answer a question of another reporter, sitting on my desk right now. But it, it says 1994 question mark. And when you go through this, and, and I kind of, you know, my family bought the book because we wanted the, we, this is what you know. A relative of ours said, "We're like, okay, well, well what's the deal with this?" Yeah. So we bought a used copy, and he literally does um, actually have a supposition in here where he's asking, "Is it 1994 or is it 2011?" And so when you go through here, he his introduction to the book actually begins with, "This is a very large Bible study. I'm publishing it because I want to know if other people think that 19, is 1994 a valid year." Or is it possibly 2011? And, and you know, it's actually quite exhaustive. But he wasn't actually um, definitive. It was a question. And so, so, gotcha, gotcha. So it's you know, I think unless a lot of people, unless they see that in in black and white for themselves, they kind of you know get the wrong impression of what was in that particular publication. So run me back again. Uh, according to the research I've done, Camping says people not taken to heaven by Jesus on May 21st will, like you said, stay on Earth. And then they will be, it'll be until October 21st, and then the entire earth will be destroyed. I mean, in other words, the big earthquake on May 21st, isn't it just going to be chance whether you survive or not? Well, I mean, in a sense, because obviously God says in the Bible that all the hairs on our head are numbered, so if right. someone, you know, dies in, in that earthquake when the graves are open, um, you know, whether they were, you know, saved or unsaved or something like that, um, you know, truthfully, anyone that survives um, that particular event, um, you know, entering that, that uh, five-month period of judgment, it's obviously, the Bible describes it as weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's going to be an extremely devastating realization to know that, the Bible was true, God was real, yeah. um, salvation isn't possible, um, and essentially sort of like uh, in Noah's day with the flood where, you know, you have 40 days of rain, the water didn't, you know, people didn't drown. Say, no, no, I, I follow that part, but I really, uh, I mean, my big thing, like what will happen to you personally on May 21st? Well, I have evidence from the Bible that, um, you know, I I'm going to be caught up to be with the Lord. You know, I, I do believe that I'm a saved person. If, if I'm here on May 22nd, that obviously means that I was not elect of God. So, um, And then what will, you, what will you do? I mean, that will be upsetting, I, I presume. Yeah, I, I was, I was going to say, I'm, I'm assuming that, you know, I will react the same way that God says that everyone will react, which is weeping and gnashing of teeth. So I'm sure there will be sorrow. I'm sure there will be anger. So May um, I want to be clear here, Allison. And, of course, the, the website is WeCanNo.com. If you're still here on May 22nd, you will know that you have not been chosen, is it to go to heaven, and you will be, as a result, very upset. But you're not expecting to be here with us on May 22nd? No. No. Okay. And are you making any preparations for the big day? Um, you know, other than, you know, just sort of trying to make sure that, you know... I 
I mean, truthfully, it's kind of funny because people say, well, what are you doing? I'm like, well, you know, you kind of have to carry on a little bit with your regular routines and daily, you know, yeah. all the things that you have to do. But, you know, I am obviously, in, in a lot of the people I know, we're allocating a lot more time to trying to spread this gospel and, and you know, get people into their Bible looking into it. Yeah, well, we um, need people to be ready. But, I mean, are you still, like, are you still going to the gym? You know, are you, are you not eating fried foods? Because it's like if May 21st is it, you know, maybe to have the, have the fried chicken. I don't know. Well, you know, I I never was much of a uh, a workout person before that, so. Oh, I understand. <laughs> but uh, you know, but there are some things, you know, personal hobbies, things like that that I kind of have let go in in order to allocate more time to this just because, you know, obviously everyone they're going to, you know, prioritize um what's most important and when you you know you really begin to look at the bible and you look at ezekiel 33 and god says you know that if you don't warn the people when you're you know and share this this judgment or this gospel information with them their blood's on your hands no you have to warn them now will this is there a possibility that jews like myself or muslims or gay people could they be picked on the 21st to go to heaven or are we basically all all in rough shape well, the truth is, is that God can save anyone. I okay, mean, I people that that were going attending Christian church that when they when you talk to them about this, they say, "Well, you know, well, you've got a better." I shot. don't want. I, if the, yeah, if this is true, I don't. I don't. I reject God. I'm like, well, here's the thing: is you can't accept God, but you can't reject Him either. He, you know, if He's going to save you, there's nothing you can do to stop Him. <laughs> right. You know, Allison, I'll be honest. I think that this is complete insanity. I'm concerned for you and everybody that that's buying into this. I'm actually worried that you're planning like a cult-style suicide on May 21st, no, no, or no, maybe well, hold on David. a second, or maybe 22nd if you aren't chosen. I'm actually worried. Do we need authorities involved here? I mean, be please be honest. Is there well, a cult I mean, suicide? Well, here's the thing. You've talked to me for, I mean, what, five minutes. Do I sound like I'm completely unhinged, or do I sound like a fairly rational person, but you don't, perhaps don't agree with that this is what the Bible's saying? I mean, well, the content of God, God me. says we don't, we don't ignore parts of the Bible in order to believe in other parts. Now, God says, thou shalt not kill, whether that's yourself or someone else. Why someone would say, oh, I believe the Bible so much that I would harm myself, I, I don't really see that that is verifiable in Scripture anywhere. So you're saying, there, we, I don't need to worry, and nobody who hears this needs to worry, that what is actually going to happen on the 21st, 22nd, is a cult suicide of any kind? No, because in, in a cult, okay. you'd have to be being told what to do, for one, and for in, 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 instead of... You know, independently going, oh, well, this is, you know, you're, no one ever, well, I don't know, maybe people do say that Christians are overall a cult but, mm. you know, in, in, in the past. But, well, people say a lot of things. Yeah, they do. They say a lot of things, but I, I wouldn't classify it that way. I mean, when you meet Good. these people, like my own family, they don't believe me to be insane. They don't think I need, you know, to have any kind of intervention by authorities. Yeah. They simply just do not see what the scriptures are saying, and, and okay. the truth is, that's because God says that, you know, just like Paul, he was blind. Not everybody so, will see it, yeah. So, yeah. last thing, real quick, would you be interested in doing an interview? Our, our sh first show after the 21st will be May 23rd. W can we set something up for that day? I mean, and just see, check in and see. I mean, I know you probably won't be here, but in case, I would love to follow up. Well, you know, if I am here, I, I think that the probably that would be the least of my worries. But you know, I've I've been, I've kind of made a precedent before I started doing interviews not to book anything after the twenty first. So um, I I'm think that makes sense. Okay, good. Well, let's. I look forward to following up with you, Allison Warden. The website is wecanknow.com. Uh, you know, I hope that you uh, make it on the twenty-first in whichever way you want. You know, uh, let let's just we'll check in after that. I think it's fair to say. All right, David. Well, I appreciate the time on your show. Okay, thank you. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye bye.
believe there'll come a judgment day, good Lord, where me and God and Jesus will decide. If we'll let you into heaven or damn you down to hell, so you might just want to stay on my good side. In the Old Testament, God must have meant only some of the things that he wrote down. But if you want to know what'll get you sent below, just check with me, I've got it figured out. I believe there'll come a judgment day, good Lord, when me and God and Jesus will decide. Jeremy, what was unveiled on the continent this week? Oh, it's the bloody French. <laughs> <laughs> Bloody French, racism's in their blood, I tell you. Um, <laughs> what, um, it's just your routine Muslim bashing by our European partners. They're offended by women wearing burqas and niqabs. They say it's not liberated, so we will force them to be liberated, and if they refuse, we will put them in prison. And you think, well, you know, so you don't like, well, as long as a burqa matches the shoes, who cares? <laughs> You can't. We don't all like seeing what people wear. Sometimes you see someone and you think you really shouldn't be wearing those leggings. <laughs> On the other hand, I'm glad you are. Um, and the burqa actually, if looked at in a different way, is a very liberating garment because it's very neutral. A woman can wear it. She won't be judged on her age, on her race, on her appearance. It looks smart and professional at all times. You'd never be late for work. You just pop it on. If you're running late, you can slip it on over your gym jams. How cool would that be? You're doing a presentation. No one knows that underneath you're wearing pyjamas and holding a teddy. If it's <laughs> boiling hot in the office, you can be naked at work. No one would know. Never be late for work. Set the alarm two minutes before you've got to be out the house, jump up, brush teeth, burker on, out the door, don't feel like going in, send a couple of the kids one on top of the other. Do you know that the same week that women in France were campaigning to wear the burka in this country, it was National Cleavage Day. <laughs> I once uh, bought a pair of shoes in a shoe shop, not surprisingly. You conventional sense, aren't you? And um, from a woman wearing a burqa. But ever since, I've had this slight niggling thing in the back of my mind that when I see someone with a burqa, I want to say hello. Because I, <laughs> I don't know if I know them or not. And I, if she sees me and recognises me, she'll think, oh, it's typical. He was very friendly in the shoe shop when I was serving him. But now, he just wants to walk past as if I don't know him. So I, every time I see someone in a burqa, I tend to sort of go, hi. The, the shoes are really comfortable. <laughs> Do you normally bond with people and keep in touch when they sell you shoes? Surely ordinary people are just the sort of chaff that we, we, we see blow away in the wind as we stroll through our blessed lives. I mean, they're marvellous with their hands, but you wouldn't want much to do with them, would you? One of them fixed the drains. I was very grateful. I made him a cup of coffee, but they don't appreciate cafetiere coffee. They prefer instant. Yeah. Of, uh, if you're banning clothing, top of my list would be culottes. Um, yes. No one should ever wear culottes. No. If you don't know what they are, they're not trousers, they're not a skirt, they're just horrific. I don't know. <laughs> and for someone of a shorter stature, it just makes me look like MC Hammer when I wear them. It's just... <laughs> my mum bought me some when I was at school. She used to buy me the outfits from a school disco. Polka dot culottes. Mm. Why don't you just put a sticker on me saying, do not touch? <laughs> Socks with sandals for men. Yeah. That, yeah. No, that's good. No. 
flip-flops. Yeah. They're rubbish flip-flops. What are they for? They're not sandals. They're not slippers. The only good thing about them is you can put them on without bending, which means they're suitable for old people who don't wear them because old people have scary eagle feet. <laughs> dressed for winter all year round anyway. Do you know what? I just love this. In France, they've had a heated debate about the burqa. We have moved on to flip-flops and clogs. because <laughs> we're less racist than the bloody frogs. That's why... <laughs> We're tolerant about what people wear. Birds should be allowed to wear what they want. (laughs) (laughs) Emmeline Pankhurst didn't set fire to herself in a letterbox, uh, or whatever she did, or sit on a horse, not sideways. (laughs) (laughs) Sit herself and found a letterbox. (laughs) Right, back to the point thing. Uh, This is... (laughs) This is the news that French police have issued their first penalty to a woman for covering her face with an Islamic veil. Under French law, both the burqa and niqab are banned, although there is a loophole allowing the garment to be worn if it is a traditional French stripy one. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as five a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. So much of what's going on in the world today, religions just can't seem to get along. But what happens when they do? That, too, is a major problem. John Oliver has more. As we all know, Islam is going to take over America. But what you might not know is that some Americans are actually helping. A Christian church and a Muslim church coming together. One nation, two faiths under God, and the same roof. There's an epidemic of churches opening their doors to Muslim communities. Churches like the Aldersgate United Methodist Church in Virginia. We were thrilled when we got the call asking if the mosque could use our congregation for its prayers on Friday. We were looking for a place to worship. Pastor Perry was very generous and he said, why not? You can come and offer your prayers here. Here's the problem. What if the Muslim God overhears the prayers from the Christians? Is there not a a danger that those prayers will just They'll get. Um, I don't think God has any trouble listening to the prayers. But it's like Santa Claus. He can only come down one chimney and he needs to know whether they've been good or whether they've been Muslim. (laughs) Fortunately, there are a few preachers like Alex McFarland who are working to protect our churches. It is not the church's responsibility to provide worship space for false religions. We love Muslims, but the belief system is Islam. The, the faith system, Islam, uh, is, is false. So you don't have a problem with Muslims at all, just Muslims that practice Islam? Uh, no, we, we love Muslims, but it, it's not truly loving to help a person uh, be 
um, you know, continually enslaved in a false belief system. Sadly, people like Pastor Perry just don't understand what Christianity is really about. The very core of Christianity is about embodying the life of Jesus. Then why do you go against the word of Jesus by promoting a false religion? No offense, but you get it, right? I am being faithful to Jesus by welcoming the stranger into the community. We love Jesus. Oh, come on. Jesus is mentioned more, in, more times in the Quran than Prophet Muhammad. You see, this infiltration has been going on for centuries. That can't be merely coincidence. It was clear there was something more nefarious at work. Satan tries to hinder the spread of God's truth, and we, I, I don't think we would want that in, in a Christian sanctuary. So oh, you're saying you'd be letting Satan into the building if Muslims were worshipping that? Potentially. Holy sh**. Absolutely. Listen, uh, and for the person who says... I mean, I mean that literally. That is some holy and leave it to Satan to infiltrate the church's most vulnerable space, the all-purpose room. At great personal risk, I snuck in undercover to discover their true intent. Their leader led his flock in a diabolical call to arms. There are numerous people around the world who do not even get clean water to drink let alone to waste in the shower. We are all <coughs> wasting too many resources. At least I think it was diabolical. His accent was a little thick. But either way, Pastor Perry had a lot of explaining to do. We are two different faiths, building relationships, talking together, working together for common purpose. But of course, the Christians have to take the lead. It would never go the other way. What if we went to the, the local imam and said, you know what, may we use your mosque on Sundays as a place to worship? That would never happen. No, I don't think so. Now would be a really bad time for us to cut away to Christians praying in a mosque. Well, um... If there was that magic clip of an imam inviting Christians to worship in a mosque, that would be a kick to the nuts. Have you got that? My name is Mohammed Al-Filali from the Islamic Center of Pisgah County, and we regularly invite our Christian friends to worship here at the center. Yes, Christians regularly worship Jesus at this New Jersey mosque. Oh, sh oh, sh oh, someone just made you look like a fool, son. Wow. I'm sure, I'm sure they're, uh, you know, that doesn't um, negate the fact that uh, we fight uh, an enemy. But perhaps the real fight won't come in this life. Obviously, Christianity is the one true faith, but if Islam is correct, you are That's true. But do you know... I mean, you are power
It's the Onion Radio News. The FBI says Muslim groups in the U.S. may be developing nuclear families. This is Doyle Redland reporting. An FBI report strongly indicates there is, quote, reliable and substantive evidence that Muslims residing in the U.S. are involved in a widespread plot to develop nuclear families. FBI Director Robert Mueller delivered this dire warning. Communities as diverse and far-flung as Newark, New Jersey and Tulsa, Oklahoma are being converted into breeder reactors in which Muslim nuclear families can be easily and cheaply produced. Only last June, the search of a Muslim home in Royal Oak, Michigan, unearthed some substantial evidence of nuclear family building activity, including the discarded remnants of a used home pregnancy test. Doyle Redland for The Onion Radio News, online at theonion.com. The American dream, but the dream I'm talking about is rooted in the Pledge of Allegiance. I got to confess to you, Mr. Speaker, I love coming here to say the Pledge of Allegiance. Whenever I'm privileged enough to be able to be on the House floor at 10 a.m. or 12, whenever we open, I always feel good about saying the Pledge of Allegiance. I teach it to my children, the Pledge of Allegiance. And my favorite part of it, and of course I love the whole thing, but my favorite part of it, is when we say liberty and justice for all. I love that part of it, for all. Now see, the conservatives in this body, they like to talk about liberty, and then when they talking about liberty, they're not talking about a woman's right to choose, because that's liberty. They're not talking about the freedom of worship to be Muslim, Christian, Jewish, Baha'i, no religion at all. They don't believe in that, they believe only one way to uh, seek the divine and they and they get more radical with it every single day they don't believe in liberties like that they don't believe in you should be able to say whatever you want to say they don't necessarily believe uh, in the liberties that I'm talking about they believe in property rights that's what they that's the liberty they talking about they mean that you ought to be able to own as much as you want and if you can buy the whole state of Texas Oklahoma or Minnesota and you got the money for it you ought to be able to do it that's what they're talking about. They're talking about property. They're talking about... Now, I believe in property rights, too. I'm a very firm believer that if you, uh, that you ought to own your home, you ought to own your business, you ought to be able to have some things that are yours in there, not for the government to control. I share that belief with them, not to the extreme they believe it, but I do believe that there is an important role for property rights, and I also believe that there's a right for personal liberties, too. And they're not so hot about that. But it seems like they end the whole discussion after injustice for all. They're, go, they're okay with the liberty part as long as it's property rights, but they're against the and justice for all. Because ju it's an and justice, not or ju and justice. Justice has to do with treating people equally, all colors, all cultures, all faiths. Justice means that you marry who you want to marry in America. It's not the government's business. Justice means treating people with fairness. That's what it means. 
Justice in the economic sphere means that all of us have to share the burden of expense of this great country of ours and that none of us can reap all the goodies of being in America but don't have to pay anything when it comes to footing the bill. That's justice. But justice. Now, in this last part, in some ways, is the best part. For all. For everyone. Last week, we had some hearings in the Homeland Security Committee where one particular religious group, religious group was pointed out for persecution, actually. That was a sad day. For all, though, America's about for all. You could, for everybody, all Americans, of whatever faith group, of whatever color, of whatever rural or urban, straight, gay, all of us, liberty and justice for all. It ought to make you feel good. And when you think about liberty, this means you can do what you want to do. My conservative friends think it only means property, but it really means property or personal liberty. Justice means we treat people fairly in America. Um, my name is Shane from Philadelphia, and I just wanted to call and respond to, I guess, the death of Bin Laden and also just the um, This American Life uh, clip that you played, because it kind of hit me in a different way than some of your other clips, because I am around the same age as uh, those people, those the college students I ever talked to. I'm in college myself, and I feel completely differently. Um, I'm 22, and when the 9-11 attacks hit, uh, my school's on strike. I was at home, and I was 13 years old. And in, instead of feeling any sort of long-lasting fear and uh, just boogeyman terror from Bin Laden, I felt next to nothing. And uh, in fact, I never outwardly admitted that for years. It was like, I, I think I was 17 or so before I even told that to my mom and was like, I didn't really feel anything when 9-11 happened. Um, and just to, um, I don't know, put that in context or um, to explain that is, um, I was much more hit um, by when I was six years old and would watch the local news and quickly figured out that I could not watch that, um, that just uh, hearing stories about someone being murdered, uh, living in the suburbs of Philadelphia and, and hearing, you know, the, the news coming out of this person was murdered or this thing happened. Um, and then later I was in fifth grade when Columbine happened and that was a big deal for everyone, everyone that had a kid or everyone um, of school age. And while that made me, um, I guess, a little bit nervous for a while, it just kind of Statistically, I didn't think it was a big deal, and it just, I just, I kind of, every large bad thing that happened, I just kind of put into a, what will happen will happen, and there's no need for me to worry about it, I guess, kind of attitude. But um, it, it, it just really struck me to hear people relatively close to my age saying how it just really impacted them, made them feel like 
there was this big looming fear over their heads when I felt absolutely nothing of the sort. I was like, bad things happen and this is just another bad thing. And it, it, it I guess, got me back, it makes a lot more sense about the way that the U.S. behaved because in a lot of ways, I didn't really care about politics and I just found that completely perplexing that um, we were putting so much effort. I, I kind of intellectually maybe understood it, but I had no emotional, um, was not caught up in the whole, in animals in any way, shape, or form. So, I don't know, I feel like that's something that I've never really spoken to on a big level, and I don't think most people hear that perspective. Um, I hope I said it clearly and didn't ramble on for too long, but uh, thanks for listening, and, um, Love your show. Thanks. Hey, Jay. This is uh, Patrick. Uh, was commenting on the, uh, the global warming aspect, and I think this is a topic that the uh, right has managed to hijack and uh, basically create a lot of confusion about the aspects of, of the science involved. And uh, people on the left, I think, try to argue the science, which may be clear, may not be clear to them, uh, but you have to understand, given the number of people in the uh, country that uh, deny evolution, I don't think attacking the science is the right way to go about this. I think we simply have to remind people that global warming, the root cause of this is pollution. So every time someone tries to defend that we don't need that, you have to put it back to the baseline. So how much pollution is good? How much pollution should we be pumping into the atmosphere? Pollution, 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 because nobody thinks pollution is a good idea, whether or not they believe in global warming. And uh, I, I just think that may be a better way to, to go about it. But uh, what do I know? Talk <laughs> to you later. Bye. Hi, Jay. It's Michael from Glen Burnie. Um, just listening to your latest episode about laden with problems. And uh, you don't have to play this if you don't want to. But I just wanted to let you know you've redeemed yourself from the whole beeper thing by playing What is Love. That is all. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. Now, today I have app news for you, and uh, please try to restrain yourself. I know it's exciting. I don't want anyone running off the road or anything, though. The first news is that um, you know, you're probably aware that this show has a couple of apps to its name already. Recently, it was big news that uh, the app that we had 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 been uh, also written for the Android device. So we've been on the Apple iPhone and iPod Touch for a long time, and uh, now we're on Android, which is very exciting. And the big news today is we've come to uh, another Apple device. It's now been optimized for the iPad. So for those of you familiar with that sort of thing, it is a single application. It's two bucks. It's in the iTunes App Store. And it works now on uh, iPhone, iPod Touch, and is optimized for the larger screen of the iPad. So if you're the sort of person who has those devices, you should definitely check it out. You get uh, the entire archive of the show right there in your hand. You know, it stream any episode or download to listen later or offline or anything like that. Um, and now on the iPad, it is optimized with uh, new, bigger features because <laughs> the big screen, you know. Uh, so that's very exciting. Check that out. 
The second piece of news has to do with Stitcher Smart Radio. This is uh, someone you, as a podcast listener, I'd be willing to bet that you have heard of them before. I mean, I wouldn't bet a lot of money, but there's a, there's a decent chance you've heard that, that name before. Basically, the idea behind Stitcher is they have an application. It's a free application. It allows you to stream instantly to your device thousands of shows. And so you can subscribe to all the different ones you want. And then every time there's a new episode, it pops up in your Stitcher device and you can listen to it. Um, now, of course, one drawback is you only get the most recent episode. You don't get the whole archive. So keep that in mind uh, as you're comparing it to the Best of Left app. I'm just saying. But it has lots of great features that uh, that you should check out. Now, here's the real important point, which is that if you sign up and use Stitcher right now, you actually have a chance to win $100. And as you can imagine, by me saying all of this, uh, signing up and using the promo code BEST, as in best of the left, uh, actually actively supports this show. So doing something that costs you nothing introduces you to a pretty cool service and enters you for a chance to win 100 bucks. Not too shabby in terms of uh, promotions. So uh, head over to either the iTunes App Store uh, or or the Android App Store or Palm or whatever you have. Uh, get the Stitcher application for your device. And as you sign up for an account, make sure you tell them that you have a promo code. That's how you get entered to win 100 bucks. If you don't do the promo code, no 100 bucks. So uh, the promo code, of course, again, is BEST. And you can also go to stitcher.com slash best to sign up. And, you know, they just will walk you right through the process when you do it that way. So check that out. And, of course, expect to hear me uh, talking about this more and more as we go forward. Now, I just want to thank a couple of members before I go. Nathaniel W. signed up for a leftist monthly membership back on June 23rd of last year and is stuck with the show all the way till now and uh, into the future, I hope. And uh, Eric S. signed up for a uh, leftist yearly membership back on February 24th. So huge thanks to uh, Nathaniel and Eric and all the members and donors who keep the show going. I couldn't do without you guys, as you know. Uh, If you have the ability, uh, I sincerely encourage you to sign up for a membership. It is, uh, you know, all the little ads and, you know, this and that aside, um, the, the members are, they're the whole game. Without the members, the show just, uh, it, it couldn't be what it is. Of course, everyone can support the show uh, by continuing to tell everyone you know about it. It really does help. So keep the word of mouth going, please. You can stay tuned into the show and help spread the word online by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all those details are always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 11 times a month, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bought a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shiny sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Who take you out any open door This is not my life It's just a fond farewell to a friend
Hi, Jay. Chuck in Salt Lake City. Um, I hate to beat a dead dog, uh, but uh, hopefully I'm doing it with a different stick today. I'm really curious what you and uh, all the rest of the listeners would think of uh, starting an interesting campaign. Um, I think we all would would love to see uh, a primary challenge that uh, didn't result in disaster. Um, but you and others have made good arguments, uh, uh, and I think I and others have made uh, good arguments as well. But here's an interesting thought. What if um, we started a campaign, progressives across the country could start a campaign to totally fund uh, Bernie Sanders' re-election campaigns for the rest of his life? Wouldn't it be great if all the progressives across the country donated to Bernie Sanders' uh, war chest to the extent that... uh, the national media would have to take notice to where we weren't putting someone up against Obama, but we were sending Obama a clear message. Hey, look, this uh, pinko socialist over here is, is making money hand over fist from people who should be sending you money. And maybe, you know, we could still send Obama money if you wanted to. And I don't think we would have to uh, all max out our contribution in order to do this. I think, you know, if we could somehow, some way, find a way to motivate progressives to uh, to donate to Bernie Sanders, because I, I don't know about you or the rest of your listeners, but uh, every time the guy speaks, I want to stick a Bernie Sanders for president sticker on my car. Um, and while I know that someone like Bernie Sanders, you know, doesn't have a chance in hell, uh, you know, if for no other reason than, gosh, he doesn't have a full head of hair, America. Uh, it would be just a fantastic message for us to send. Anyway, I'm just curious what uh, if that just amuses you all, or uh, or if it's something that uh, anyone would uh, care to join me in an endeavor. Anyway, thanks for all your work, Jay. Hello, Jay. It's Michael from Glenbury. Um, just wanted to call and uh, answer your call to uh, to talk about Osama bin Laden's death and, and our reactions to it. And, um, I don't know. I, I kind of ran the gamut. I, 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 probably my only reaction at the beginning was that I was shocked, uh, namely that we actually did something we set out to do. But uh, like you, I wasn't particularly excited about it. And, uh, you know, that gradually changed as time went on and I engaged in discussions with people and I think I've actually come to a point now where I'm sorry that he was killed. Not so much from the fact that he's dead that I miss him or anything like that. Obviously that's not really the case. But um but mainly from the fact that, that killing him kinda of took us down a notch as a country. Uh and I think as difficult as it would have been to go through, bringing him to trial and and actually doing it legally and, and in line with what we believe and profess as a country would have said something powerful. And I, I feel it's a great loss to us that, that we, we gave up on that chance pretty much without even trying. I certainly understand the motivations for doing it the way we did. Uh, you know, both logistical, realistical, realistical, that's a word, uh, and, um, and, and otherwise. But uh, I, I just can't help but 
but feel a, a sense of uh, not missed opportunity. But anyway, that's my two cents. Thanks for everything you do. Um, oh, and uh, I, I wanted to answer your call to uh, suggest podcasts as well. Uh, the new podcast, relatively new, that just came out, um, actually is uh, put on by Paul Gilmartin, uh, who's frequently on the Jimmy Dore Show, which I found through you. Thank you. And uh, he has a show called The Mental Illness Happy Hour. And uh, and it's all about talking with um, relatively famous people that, that have, and some not famous people, that, that have mental illnesses and what it's like to live with it and their experiences and how they got through it. Very good eye-opener, very good uh, uh, for spreading the message and, and raising awareness on on uh, often stigmatized part of our society. So at any rate, thanks for everything you do. Take care.